0: Good morning. This morning we're continuing our discipleship series, and we're going to be talking about John, the disciple who Jesus loved, the one who wrote the Gospel of John, my favorite gospel, Gospel of Choice. And we're going to be talking about hurricanes. So, first, we're going to talk about hurricanes, because hurricanes seem to me to be one of the best ways and the best metaphors to describe our faith journey as we follow Jesus in this life. Now, this may not sound like good news to you, but stay with me and help me look at the evidence. Because hurricanes are one of the most powerful forces in all of nature. They have the potential to destroy, to reorder, to transform everything in their path. Hurricanes are wildly unpredictable. Ranging in category from one to five, their power is to be feared. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Psalm 111 tells us. Hurricanes um, that reach uh, above 180, 178K are usually considered a category three. And they're usually considered dangerous. So they are the ones that have the power and the potential to um, have life loss, to cause real damage in the world. And sometimes, I think, we need in our lives God's love that strongly for us to detach our stubbornness to the worldly ways that we all get stuck in. So from our discipleship series, we can also see that. I don't know if you were here, but a few weeks ago, Jesse shared the sort of a reflection of Lazarus' death and resurrection in his own life. He had a life-threatening accident that was caused by an unexpected patch of ice on a Sunday morning as he was driving to service. Now, to be clear, God did not put that patch of ice there, but God did use that to reorder Jesse's life and the paramedic's life who came to know Jesus through that category five experience. Today, also, I will share a little bit about a storm of doubt that I experienced, and it reordered my faith. It was the message from John's gospel, believe, that drew me out of that darkness. So, the Apostle John is known as the the disciple that Jesus loved. And I want to be that as disciple. That's why I'm so attracted to John's gospel. Not only was John confident that Jesus loved him, but he was also confident in Jesus' identity. He knew that Jesus was a very manifestation of the creator himself here with us in the form of a man. I want Jesus' love to teach me also who I am and why I am here, just like the disciple John did. Will you join me in prayer, please? Grace-giving Father, come this morning, and will you open our minds and our hearts to hear your words of guidance and comfort, of encouragement in this truth-telling story from John's Gospel today let us hear and taste your love and that encouragement in this beautiful gospel from john let us see how your love shapes us that even though it comes to us like a gentle breeze it carries the power of a category 5 hurricane to reorder our thoughts and our hearts and our lives to make people us your people people after your own heart. Amen. So first I'm going to give you just a few little snapshots of who John the disciple was. He first shows up in Matthew's Gospel as Jesus is walking on the shore of Galilee with, uh, I think, Peter and Andrew, and and John and his brother James are in the boat fishing. And Jesus comes by and he says, Come, follow me. Now immediately they just pull the boat in, they jump out of the boat, and they follow him. Now, I just kind of wonder about that. I think, did those disciples, did those guys just think they were following with their friends to have a barbecue on the beach with Jesus? What how, did, what got them out of the boat? And they just said yes. And little did they know that they were stepping onto a journey that would literally change so many things in their lives. That even as they were beginning to follow Jesus, God was answering their prayer for a Messiah to come to the Jewish nation and reset everything. It was a category one or ten starting off. We also know from Acts that John lived through the storm of watching his own brother, who was the leader of the church in Jerusalem in the first couple of years, in the first ten years of that early church in Jerusalem. He watched his brother be martyred at the hands of King Herod. It was a message sent to the early church to discourage them. We also know that John then moved on to Ephesus at some point and writes his gospel probably around the year 80 AD, which is after the other accounts of Jesus' life written by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Perhaps it was not only John's need to express his um, his voice, his very unique voice, but also in the detail that John gives us, it supports the the other accounts of the gospel that people were reading. John does write with a very personal voice, one that sort of, which is what I love about it, because I feel like I'm kind of looking over his shoulder and hearing what Jesus is doing as I'm reading his gospel. And he also has this wonderful way of bringing our head knowledge and our heart knowledge together, of dropping these deeper truths right into the middle of a story. So a perfect example of that is in John 3, when Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus about being born again in the Spirit. Nicodemus, if you remember, is the Pharisee who comes to him at night to find out who is this guy. And this is what John gives us as Jesus' words. It'll be very familiar to you. For God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. There it is, John's message. We will also hear that same message when we, when we get into our passage today. It is from, it's from um, the last chapter of John, or chapter 21, but watch for it, because that same message comes up from John as he says, look, it's Jesus, it's God, the man, and God and man together here with us, believe. Okay, let's jump into our text, good, um, afterwards, Jesus appeared, or revealed himself again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee, and it happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathanael from Canaan in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee and two other disciples were together. I'm going out fishing, Simon Peter tells them. We'll go with you. So after the initial storm of Jesus' death and resurrection in John's gospel, Jesus comes and shows himself three times to his disciples. This will be the third time he shows himself. The disciples are all together, and they're still reeling from just the experiences they've had with Jesus. First, he is dead. First, they have lost everything, it seemed. And then he comes back to be with them. What does it mean? What They're trying to figure out, what do we do now? So in that sort of mix of, of that storm of what happened, they're just trying to find some footing. And I imagine, like all of us, they're just wanting something familiar. So being in that unfamiliar territory, they decide to go back to something that they know how to do, something that does seem familiar, fishing. And perhaps also it speaks to the fact they need to retrace their steps of the last three years, to go back to where this journey began with that simple come, follow me. So let's read the next section. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. And he called out to them, friends, do you have any fish? No, they answered. And he said, throw your net on the right side of the boat. And you will find some there. When they did that, they were unable to haul the net in because, the, because of the large number of fish. So Jesus shows up after they spent the whole night trying to fish. And they haven't caught one fish. Nothing. Just nothing. And I'm sure they're kind of wondering, what have we been doing? And then, from the shore, they hear this voice. Hey, you got anything out there? Did you catch something this last night? Jesus speaks kind of like a, a fellow fisherman. And some of them may have been wondering who's this guy on the shore, the backseat fisherman? What's he telling us to do for? But as tired as they were, and for whatever reason, the disciples decide maybe they're grumbling like, who is that guy? Anyway, they obey him. They lift and cast the net again on the right side of the boat. This one small act of obedience, I think, pivots the story, and I think it opens up the next chapter in their lives. Now, it's hard to say if it was before the net started to fill with fish or after But John's eyes are on the shore and he leans forward and he says, look, it's the Lord. Let's go back to our text. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard that, he said, it's the Lord. He jumped out of the boat, wrapped his garment around him for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore. And when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there, and fish on it, and some bread. So as I'm reading that story, I'm thinking to myself, why doesn't John jump out of the boat? He's the first one to know it's Jesus. And really, the simple answer to that is because John is John, and Peter is Peter. We'll hear earlier in John's gospel that John and Peter ran to the tomb of Jesus, and that John outran John to the tomb, but he stands back, and he lets Peter enter into that tomb first. We can kind of chalk that up to Peter being an older brother and John sort of the younger brother, and letting the older brother go first. But more importantly in the story, is that John tells us when he goes into the tomb and sees the grave he believed. We hear that same echo as John's recognizes Jesus' voice and knows that it's Jesus on the shore. Let's get back to the text. And Jesus said to them, bring some fish that you've just caught So Simon Peter climbs back into the boat, and he drags the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, and he took bread, and he gave it to them, and he did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus had appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So some of the things that come up as we look at that text are, why does John give us kind of those small little details, like the charcoal fire and the 153 fish and, and Peter putting on his clothes? And, and there's some, some good answers to that. The first one Think about the last time in John's Gospel that we heard about the charcoal fire and we remember that it was Peter standing around a charcoal fire outside the high priest's house when he was asked about being a follower of Jesus and he denied Jesus three times. John is helping us set the stage for something else that's going to happen. The other details, like 153 fish, a lot of uh, commentators have um, just masses of interpretations of that, and so I'm not going to get into those parts, but I will say that one of the things that John does in his gospel is that he tries to uh, give us detail that will really support the story so that we can see ourselves in the midst of that story, and again, he writes that not only with the authenticity, but also because he wants to further his main goal, which is to help us see and hear what he also experienced so that we might believe. You also might wonder why Jesus asked them to bring fish that they have just caught onto the fire that he's going to serve them from. This probably suggests that Jesus is reminding them that he's inviting them to join him in this journey of telling the world. They are to be co-laborers as they share the good news of Jesus' story in people's lives. I want to dial back a little bit and look at the whole story and think about where the disciples were. They had just weathered that Category 5 hurricane in their lives. Jesus' violent death, their own danger by being associated with him, and they had lost also that person that was their leader, their rabbi, their friend, and they had lost also the idea that Jesus would come and bring a new kingdom. They might have been holding on to that in some form, but it was clear that he was not going to be the overriding power that came in and Kicked the Romans out and helped establish a new kingdom for Israel. Now they're experiencing Jesus in a whole new way. He is alive with them, but he's not the same. His presence is mysterious and unpredictable. He's not fearful, but he's powerful, but not overwhelming. On the beach that morning, that started out like an ordinary fishing trip. It became extraordinary breakfast with all of them. When Jesus served them breakfast, no one asked his identity because they knew. They knew deep in their heart and in their head who this was. And as they had conversation, they renewed their bonds of friendship and love with Jesus. And that set the stage for what would come next. I like to think I would give up almost anything to be at that breakfast on the beach with Jesus. It looks like my perfect summer morning. But this was only the eye of the storm. The eye of God's category 10 storm plan. Because soon he would send the winds of Pentecost that would thrust the disciples out into the whole new direction, reordering again their understanding and experience of Jesus' life and their lives as well. For us, too, as we follow Jesus, we can expect life altering winds that change us. They are unavoidable if we're going to follow Jesus. And when I look back, on the storm of doubt that I experienced and reordered my faith, I realized that it also came at the end of a very long, hard climb, and that the winds that had carried me through my graduation at Regent and Soul Stream um, were beginning to slow and change direction. Now, I had expected, and maybe this was a little bit of a bargain with God, that as soon as I finished my work, because it had taken me quite a few years to get there, that work would arrive, work that would um, help change the outflow of money to inflow of money in our lives, and that I was ready for what God had planned for me. But however ready I thought I was, and maybe I kind of thought I bargained with God about that, but it didn't happen. Work did not arrive. I interviewed, I sent resumes, I read job postings, nothing. Weeks dragged into months, and then six months. And concurrently, my husband's work in the film industry was also, which is always sort of capricious, also seemed to stall. So project after project he was invited into evaporated. We knew when we moved up from Los Angeles away from Hollywood there might be consequences like that. But at first, it didn't really feel like this doubt was a hurricane. It felt much more like getting stuck in the doldrums, the doldrums of nothingness as I looked for work. My prayer life began to wane and drop out, and Jesus felt like he was distant and unreachable, and reading the word was flat and uninteresting and even irrelevant sometimes, it seemed. Worship brought me no joy. And my spiritual director kept assuring me that this was sort of normal on our spiritual journey to have this testing and to be in the desert. And the experience of doubt and darkness is well documented in, um, by St. John of the Cross and many other writers when they talk about our, our journey with Christ. And my favorite one, <laughs> which is what I really identified with at that time, comes from Teresa Avil. And she presumably writes to Jesus, she writes, well, if this is how you treat your friends, no wonder you have so many enemies. Yeah, that's exactly where I was. And pervasive doubt about all of it began to just crowd out my faith. What if... My faith was all a big ruse. My journal entry from November read, today hope fails. I feel hopeless in our situation. The car cost was twice what we expected. The bills pile up. We borrow from our future, taking money out of our pension fund. Lord, where are you? Have I been so naive, so idealistic to invest in a theological degree. I know your ways are not my ways, but I should rather have put my effort and time into something that would give us at least a mortgage payment. I felt foolish and stupid. I have to ignore the ways of the world, have I ignored the ways of the world so long that I don't know it anymore? And perhaps I am so misguided and sinful that I never really knew you at all, Jesus. We will list the house maybe we 'll sell before Christmas <laughs> when I went back to reread that journal piece, I kind of was taken back. I was kind of shocked at how deep um, and and how frank I was writing to God in that way. Um, but what um, but even as bleak as that sounds, at least I was still engaging with God through that conversation. And what I remember of the week that followed was that there was no conversation with God. And I began to really question, did he really exist? I began to feel that there was this massive, oppressive darkness that I could not avoid feeling, that maybe everything in my life had been a lie. The times I had said to Jen, oh, don't worry if you didn't get that project. Um, God has something better planned. Now that felt like childish and unrealistic. And when we had moved up from Vancouver, I told all of our Los Angeles friends, we're not sure if it's the right move, but we trust God and we're trying to be obedient. And now that very obedience began to feel like stupidity. The Advent service I had planned, all the other Christmas celebrations, were they just a farce, I began to ask myself? Were they no more than a manipulation of feelings and words to promote a false reality? And the fear of having invested time and money and hard work for an idea that might not exist made me really angry. So in this sort of suffocating darkness, which lasted probably, as I remember it, about five days, um, there was one thought that came down, sort of sifted down through, I don't know, where I was in this dark pit. You don't have to live in this dark pit, was the thought. You can choose. I kind of had to go over that in my mind. I could choose. Despite our situation, there is a God who orders the universe. I could choose to believe. Despite all evidence to the contrary in our lives at that point, God was. Maybe God is still alive. And is he the God of the scriptures and the God of the gospel? At that point, it felt like almost everything in our lives, our security with the house and our family, was being taken away. Like the disorder of an aftermath of a hurricane. But I had a choice. So on December 3rd, another journal um, entry I'm going to read to you comes up. And it reads like this. Okay, God, I'm bruised. And I'm broken after our big fist fight. I'm exhausted but somehow relieved. Even though nothing in my life has changed, I find I cannot give you up. God, Father, Son, and Spirit, I don't want to give you up. I cannot live in the darkness without you. So God, you are the truth I choose. The real estate agent is coming tomorrow. For listing, As I read that, I remembered that choice. I remembered that choosing. But I will tell you that not a whole lot changed immediately in our lives. That spring of scarcity continued. And there was nothing in my affect that changed dramatically either, other than just the desire not to go back into the darkness and to wait. And I continued my journaling with God, which um, sounded a little bit like this. Okay, God, it's a tall order to find work for a woman more than halfway through her life with a theological degree. That's a long shot. But you, oh God, oh Lord, you are the one that got me into this. You invited me. You help me find tuition every time, over and over again. I trust you, oh God, to not let this education and desire go to waste. And I believe that that's what God did. I'm standing here today, in fact. And I can tell you that from that moment, I think I have never had to go back down into that darkness. That doubt did not come back. Look, it's Jesus. That's the line that John uses. It captures me every time I read it. I want to be that disciple that sees Jesus in my own life and says, look, that's the Lord doing something in our lives. It's God showing up. When we say yes to following Jesus, our lives may be caught up in that reordering Let me say that again. When we say yes to Jesus, our lives will be caught up in the reordering, the uh, re-changing of all the storms that the Holy Spirit brings. It may be a category one or a category five, and there will be more winds of the Spirit. The winds of sanctification, which is that giant word that the church uses to talk about how we grow more and more like Christ Christ. There will be moments or even seasons where you are hanging on for dear life, where your faith is as thin as the wisp of a cloud on the edge of the storm. And there will be seasons where you are in that calm, clear center of the eye with God, where you are feeling confident of His love and the storms of life rage all around you. For sure you will experience those pleasant breezes of the Spirit where the goodness of life seems abundant. But one thing is for sure. If we are following Jesus, our life will be reordered over and over and over again. There will be doubt that comes because you are following Jesus. Jesus, to follow Jesus fundamentally means that you're going to be walking against the ways of the world. And remember, Jesus was on the shore with his disciples. You can't do it without Jesus's voice. So tune your ears to Jesus's voice as John did and discover that Jesus colors outside the lines. That Jesus is not confined by our church doctrine or our own expectations of what he's going to do. Love knows no boundaries, friends. All that he asks of us is believe. Now, John ends his gospel, which is chapter 20, with these words that I will end with today. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Life, real life, is investing in what we cannot see but we know deep in our hearts is there. Pray with me. Jesus, help us to choose you. Help us to choose life that you give us. Help us to look past or to keep seeking to see you in our lives. To set aside our expectations of how you're going to show up. To meet us when we're hanging on for dear life on the edge of the storm, and to show up on a quiet morning on the beach and remind us how much you love us. Come, Jesus. Come into our lives and teach us again of who you are so that we know and we can say, look, it's Jesus here. Amen.